but the thing was, is that, is that the reason why that was such a strong thing for me was it was the first time in my life that I felt like I belonged somewhere. I didn't feel like I belonged in my town or in my school and I didn't belong in my home, which was very volatile. And it was very hard to breathe every day. And when I read that book, it felt like, oh wait, so my, the, 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 I could have a chosen family, which might be friends, which might be a family that I make for myself. And that's kind of what the outsiders is, is all these kids coming together, you know, and finding their chosen family in a lot of ways. And, um, and it was the first time that I felt like, oh, wow, this thing, this poetry thing I love so much, you know, here's this kid named Pony Boy, and he likes to, you know, read Frost. And, and it just felt like, wow, this is, this is home. This is the ICTE Podcast, a quarterly news and talk show about what's new, trending, and worth discussing in the world of teaching English language arts. The ICTE Podcast is the official podcast of the Iowa Council of Teachers of English and was created to advance ICTE's mission of facilitating deep connections and professional learning for English language arts teachers of all stages. This is Episode 9, Part 1. I'm Austin Hall. And I'm coming to you from ICTE and iowaenglishteachers.org. In this two-part episode, I'm pleased to bring you a 2017 conversation that ICTE member Jen Paulson and I had with YA Rockstar authors and friends, G. Neri and E.E. E. Charlton Trujillo. If your classroom library isn't already stocked with the work of these two, you will definitely want to remedy that as soon as you give this a listen. The ICTE podcast is not liable for any purchases made as a direct result of this show. In all seriousness, though, enjoy the pod and happy reading. All right. So, welcome. Would you guys like to tell us uh, how you became friends? <laughs> you go, Neri. <laughs> <laughs> I predict uh, This was in um, Illinois in Champaign, oh, right? Oh, yeah. And we were both at this... Uh, festival that I've been to a couple of times. Yeah, it's great. Um, she was screening her film and I was like, I I had heard of that film somewhere before. And I thought, oh, I'll go check it out. I'll go check it out. And I, it was off campus, so it was kind of a long walk to get there. Yeah. And then I got there and it was like, I don't think there was anybody there yet. Yeah, no. <laughs> You, you were or, the only I mean, it was sold out. Came. It was sold out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you were the only <laughs> author who came. I was the only author. So I'm the only author that counts, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we made that screening. Yeah. Because yeah. I was a filmmaker. And so, you know, you're a filmmaker. I thought, okay, I know what it means to do a screening. Mm -hmm. You got to support, support uh -huh. wherever you can. So mm -hmm. I went. And I was like, wow, who are you? Wait, what did you, who are you? And then he's like, you know, I'm just driving around and I'm working with kids and I'm doing these things with school visits. And so I was like, oh yeah, me too. Me too. Except I put my whole house in storage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's so how there's we met. still one-upmanship there. You yeah. too. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. It yeah. just felt right to be friends. <laughs> exactly. We're both uh, rebels without a cause. Yeah, and we're both like the outsiders. So then we were we were bonded immediately. And then there's a whole story about the outsiders later with S.E. Hinton. 
Yeah. 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 Well, I have a question about that coming up. So. <laughs> sure, that'll be great. So hold well, that. Well, and I uh, I have a question for both of you too, and I uh, I'm I'm going to go out of order here because okay. you guys were both talking about um, being filmmakers too. Yes. And and so that's something that I've uh, noticed in your work, both of you as well, um, Greg with Knockout Games, Fish playing a big filmmaking role mm -hmm. there. Uh, and Ian, Fat Angie, there's a lot of references to movies and filmmaking and stuff there too. Um, so the question for both of you is just, um, how, how does your training as filmmakers uh, impact your work as you write? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, you wanna go, mm -hmm. G? No, you go. Um, I think because I was, I was trained as an editor um, first and, and you know, lining up everything scene by scene and a director as well is that when I'm when I'm coming to the page a lot of it I see it as scenes I see it cinematically and I'm looking at what does the camera see so it's almost as if I'm I'm playing the movie in my own head of how everything's moving from one piece to the next but the difference between that and film is is you have to be really specific about you know in film you have a lot more latitude especially in feature films whereas in, in books what you want to do is really be specific about what do you see in the room what is its relevance how does it carry through into the, the arc of the story? You know, you, you, you don't go scene by scene by scene the way you would in a film. You're going by chapters and often there'll be breaks in time and things that are a lot larger. But I, I think having that background, that training, um, really made a huge difference because I was a filmmaker first and then went into writing and literally stumbled into it, not realizing it was something I even had the ability to do was to write for young people. And, um, I think uh, I think I would be a very different writer without that. And I, you know, a lot of the things I hear when I when I do get feedback is, oh, this feels very cinematic. So for me, that's that's a compliment because it feels like, oh, that transition between the two um, is working for a lot of people. Now, people say that about Greg, but they're just saying that to make him feel better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, um, you know, I think I learned storytelling from making movies. Mm -hmm. I think it translates because I think my books have a, a a rhythm and a feel like a movie. When I write it, I'm seeing it as a movie in my head. Yeah. And so the dialogue is, is very important and the sense of place and these kind of emotions that come across cinematically. And I think when kids read it, the comment I get the most is, you know, it feels like they're watching a movie. Yeah. Um, and so they can get into it and just go for it. It's kind of very immediate and um, very linear in a way. Um, the other thing I used to, my first job in Hollywood was post-production for uh, making trailers for movies. And so I got very good at like breaking down a story into a 60 second or two minute trailer like, how do you figure that out? Like, what is the essence of this movie? Because you'd have to watch a movie and figure out, like, how, how are you going to sell the idea of this movie in 60 seconds, 30 seconds, or two minutes? What is this movie really about? What is the essence? What is the, the thing that really grabs people, the hook? And how can you show that quickly? And another game we used to play when I was making movies was if you could come up with the poster first, um, like the title and that image and the tagline and people could look at that and totally get the movie, then you got the movie. 
And so one of the things I do is like, I always play with the cover. Like I design covers very early on because if I come up with a title and the cover and a tagline and a feeling of it, then that really helps me focus. Like, what is this story? What is the hook that's really going to grab people? You know, so there's a lot of stuff that has seeped over from my years making movies uh, way more than being, you know, a literary type of person. No, but I want to speak to something about Greg and knowing him as a, as a friend and, and also as an author is I've seen his process, some of it. And, you know, he does do those posters and he creates the essence, you know, and, and he really does capture that. The other thing that um, I see him do a lot of is create a Bible. And he does that for his stories. And that really comes, I mean, television writers do that all the time. Yeah. You create a Bible, which is their set of who are the characters of the story? How do they, where do they come from? What are they? Like you get to know everything. It's almost like knowing the kind of gum they chew and you, you get to know their world and everything like that. And it's been interesting because I've talked about Greg's use of the Bible, either with young people or with other authors, and I'm watching their work improve mm. because they're doing that in their work. It's changing their process. Mm. And it's really an old television writing technique is to create these, these Bibles as they call it. You, and, you know what I'm talking about. And where that comes from, I think, is like if you're collaborating with a cinematographer or a costume designer, you have to come with references. You can't just say, oh, here's my script. Like if I'm working with a cinematographer, I would come in with all kinds of visual references. Like this is the feel and the tone and the look I'm thinking about, or these are the costumes. And so I, but I do that for myself as a writer. So I'm trying to, so I pull a lot of visual images that help me, figure out what the tone is, you know, so I know what it is. So, cause I'm playing all the roles. I'm the cinematographer, I'm the totally, yeah. decorator, the, the costume designer. So I'm more visual than, like I don't do intensive biographies and things like that, like some people do, but it's more just visual stimulus. Like, so if I can find the perfect picture that captures that character, mm-hmm. like that's the guy. Or and So I just have to look at that picture to keep me on track right yeah and that's where yeah. our that's where our processes are very similar is we're yeah. very visual based we see an image there's an emotion there that another another person might look at that and just see an image and not really get the same feeling but it's almost right. you know it's going off of that feeling and then like but what's the layers underneath that feeling and that story and yeah. that image that, that might not be the original intent and the other thing is, like, I think if you go through it enough times, especially movie making, which is such a tight, concise thing, like you have two hours or 120 pages or whatever, mm-hmm. you kind of get a sense. Uh, if you do it enough, you know where the rhythm and the flow is, you know, to a movie. And like, if you see a ton of movies like we've seen, like, you know, you know, the flow and the feeling of it internal, like it's internal in your body now. Like you don't have to think about, okay, by page 90, this, the cliff needs to happen, then he's, and then he's going to come out and page, you know, 110. Like, I don't like that. Like, I just know, like, this is the part where the bottom is going to fall out and this is the part where he redeems himself or whatever. You know, like, you just haven't, you've seen so many movies. It's just all built into your physical being, you know, like you don't have to intellectualize it anymore. Well, and to our credits, I, I think collectively we probably watched what thirty thousand, forty thousand films. Made. Yeah, I mean, Easy. I mean, he's about the only person I I know 
that I would consider someone that I know really well, who's probably seen as many movies as I have. And I have seen a lot of movies. I mean, by the time I, from the ages of 10 to 17, I watched over 7,239 films. <laughs> I wrote them all down. <laughs> I have a list too. When I was a kid, you know, and that was on the old VCR, you know, where you put in the tape and it, you know, remember when it popped up and then you would put the tape in and it would drop down. Sure. But also like, you know, we, we, I, you know, I think we both edited back when we actually used film and tape. Oh yeah. Yeah. And when you made a change, it was a big deal. Like I need to yeah. add two frames. Well, you got to run down the hallway, find the yep. bin that has that section, find the, the yeah. trim that has those two frames, run back, you got to slice it off. You got to cut it. You got to tape it in. You got pop and you got to wind it. You got to watch it. Say, ah, yeah, I don't we like need it. One more. And so that <laughs> one change takes a half hour right. easily. And so you really think about story. Story and every kind of every moment. Like you're trying to make right. it tight. And anything that's kind of doesn't help build a story is gonna go. Which part now, of course, in the digital age, which is what you know, I was well, Yeah, it's too easy. It's it's a lot it's a lot easier. So kids today can, you know, have a different thing. How does that play into storytelling though? What Greg is saying though is that when you're there manipulating, you're using film or you're using tape and you're having to do these non-linear edits, you are really required to think about what is the story? How do I get this story? How do I get there? And, and you do it so many times that it becomes second nature. You know, it's like almost like you, you know how to put it together. And that's what happens, I think, when you become a writer and begin to write long form is it kind of you have the process because you've sat and worked with that in a, but on a different medium entirely, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, it's gotten to the point where the last three novels, maybe like, I literally have no idea what's going on or like, I, I, I see it like I'm living it. Like I know what happened yesterday. And so I'm showing up, like, I don't know what's going to happen today in real life. Right. And I don't know what's going to happen today with these characters, but I sit down and stuff happens and I know I have plans for tomorrow. Like tomorrow, I think these characters are gonna go here, but I have no idea how that's gonna play out. Um, so I have like this three-day window in my story. Like I, my brain space, my hard drive is so full. Like I can't think back to 60 pages ago. I can't think ahead to 60 pages. I can only think in these three days and that's enough memory in my head. Is, that's all I can handle. <laughs> and so there's something about it, it like keeps it, very present and you're not thinking back to okay what happened on page 20 and how am I going to tie that in because my intricately woven story and it's going to pop here at page 70 and then it's going to come back and and grab on page 230 and it's like no <laughs> and that's, that's going to and I differ that's it's going to happen but it's going to happen internally yeah. it's going to happen just you know because you're living it that's, that's where he and I differ is that we're there's similarities but definitely once I'm in process, like deep process like that, what he's talking about, my mind then, I always know the ending. And then I, but what happens is I might be on page 70 working on something, but then I see a solution that's going to happen, you know, down on, you know, the third chapter from the end. I'll pop down, fix that part, swing back. And I'll do that once I'm really deep in. Like I'll definitely yeah. be all over I mean, the place. I will do that later, like after yeah. the first draft, and then I'll go back and kind of. <laughs> right. Then I will do an outline just to kind of see basically what I have so I can just see yeah. it as a whole very simply. And then I will move stuff around. Or, do you ever use the note cards, Greg? 
I always mean like to because that's how I was raised as a filmmaker. I know. Like you put on every scene, you put it up on a wall. Yeah, I know, right? And you move things. But it, I've never been able to do that for. Books. I never have either until this until the sequel for Fat Angie. This is the first time because in the book there there's a road trip and so they're hitting all these different destinations for a purpose, and I couldn't yeah. keep up with all the destinations, so I had to put up the map on the back of the right. door, mark the destinations, and then I had to note card it. But then I the cards had to be based on the character arcs and all the stuff, right. and I realized pretty quickly. That I was, I could look at it and go, wait a minute, this this destination's in the wrong time frame, and I could shuffle the card without having to go through and physically deal with like trying to go through the whole book chapter wise. Yeah. It actually worked for me. It's the first time, even when I did film, I didn't like using the note cards that right. much. Well, I'll, t- I'll take that back because I will actually like after that first draft, I and I do the outline. I will maybe write it down on cards. Um, with the intent that I'm going to put them up on the wall and move things oh, yeah. around. But I don't actually do it. To me, it's like just the act of writing it down yeah. Yeah. puts it in my head and then, yeah. and then you can just do it. Yeah. Um, so I do a lot of stuff like that with a different intent, but then I don't actually. It never through. made it to the wall. It never made, it was always like a deck of cards or something. Or just you like the outline, like I'll outline <laughs> it. But I don't really use that. Oh, I can't outline. That's I can't outline. I no, just, I mean yeah. after the first draft, I, I never outlined I, before the first draft. I think outline's probably really important for people who work in who write like fantasy, YA fantasy or medical. Yeah, fantasy. like very intricately yeah. plotted. Maybe. Yeah, I think they yeah. have to have those outlines. But oh man, to me it kills. I, and, I, and my hat goes off to them because it's. I think I think it's an important part of the process for a lot of writers. It just it it makes me more locked up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, yeah. That's just because they're losers, but you know what? You, I'm not. Yeah, I can't believe you said that. They're not losers. You be a nice person. All right, now they have questions for us since we've talked for the last fifteen minutes. Okay. I, I told you us. <laughs> right. For sure. We'll be lucky to get a question in. <laughs> um, at the beginning of "Feels Like Home," there's a quote that really resonated with me um, from Mickey. Whenever Danny went back to the binding of that yellow-paged outsiders, belonged to felt like home. Um, I also felt that home in the pages of the outsiders, and that's where I first really saw myself mm-hmm. as a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was given to me as a gift for my best friend Jane, mm. who's been my friend since I was four, and uh, we still talk about it, you know, all these years later. Um, so, how did you come up and and discover the outsiders and then um, maybe talk about how that book in particular and, and maybe other books create that feeling of home and bond us in relationships. And then G, you can jump into. Yeah. Um, he, he doesn't get to say it's, it's important to you too. Um, we, we're bonded over the outsiders. I mean, that's, that's one thing that we definitely bonded over. Here's the thing is um, when I was in seventh grade, uh, I wanted to be part of um, a thing we call UIL in Texas, which is the University of Interscholastic League, and we get to compete in drama and things like that. And the teacher um, who was coaching the, the kids, uh, she said I wasn't talented, which was really code for um, you're queer and I don't really want you to be part of this. And um, she, didn't, she didn't let me audition. And so at that time, my history teacher, however, saw that I was you know, wanting to do this thing. So she gave me a copy of The Outsiders and she says, I think this is really going to speak to you. And, um, and she says, um, if you want to, I'll coach you. And so basically she coached me reading a piece 
um, with four characters that were all boys. And that's unheard of in, in that time in the, you know, the 80s in Texas. A girl didn't go in and read in UIL. You read like, you know, I don't know, Ramona or something. I don't know. You read something that was not this. And, um, and then, so we went to the district and then I, I beat everyone in the, in, in the district and I beat everyone in my school. And, um, and which sounds really awful because beat sounds like it's really violent. <laughs> but, but the thing was, is that, is that the reason why that was such a strong thing for me was it was the first time in my life that I felt like I belonged somewhere. I didn't feel like I belonged in my town or in my school and I didn't belong in my home, which was very volatile. And it was very hard to breathe every day. And when I read that book, it felt like, oh wait, so my, the, 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 I can have a chosen family, which might be friends, which might be a family that I make for myself. And that's kind of what the outsiders is, is all these kids coming together, you know, and finding their chosen family in a lot of ways. And, um, and it was the first time that I felt like, oh, wow, this thing, this poetry thing I love so much, you know, here's this kid named Pony Boy, and he likes to, you know, read Frost. And, and it just felt like, wow, this is, this is home. And then when I wrote Feels Like Home, the thing that happened was um, I opened with a quote from The Outsiders. And then it, for me, it literally became something where The Outsiders was almost like a character that is, existed between this brother and sister who were in great struggle. And I think in a lot of ways, I was, I was having some struggle of, you know, growing up at that point in my life, you know, with my own brother and, you know, my adopted brother and, and, and really trying to work some stuff out in my head about the world and everything. And, and I think bringing that book back that changed my life when I was so young and made me feel like I could, I could be a writer, that I could say something, you know, that now, you know, here it is. And I, and I found this, this world where it could exist and feels like home. And it just felt like, you know, it was something I was supposed to always do. Like, I, I, wish, I wish that a book like Feels Like Home had existed for me when I was younger, just like I was so happy that The Outsiders did. Because if, if she hadn't written that book, I don't really know how I would have gotten through the seventh grade. It's not about winning the competition that I won. It's about being able to make it through the day. And that book made me feel like there was some hope in the world, you know? And I think books do that. They give us a sense of a home inside of ourselves sometimes, you know, when we don't feel like the four walls outside of us really works. But um, Neri is a big fan of S.T. Hinton, so much so that I'm going to tell a story since they're going to cut this out anyway. Okay. And we were in NCTE, and I'm in line, and I'm number 14 in the line because some teachers were so kind to let me in the line to meet S.E. Hinton. And Neri comes up and says, hey, you want to jump the line? You want to skip? Do you remember that, Neri? Sure. sure. Jump right in here, man. You can help part of the story. Well, you have to go back because oh. um, first she was going to give a talk and neither of us were invited. So I was like, well, I want to go. So I'm going to pull my, I'm going to pull my whatever pull we have because of our talk went over really well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I forget who I texted and then she texted somebody and then suddenly uh, I got an invite and then we both went down. You're so, room, you're so remembering this wrong. No, no, no. And the room was full. And, and there was some seats way in the back. And you wanted to sit in the back. And I'm like, but I know somebody. They have a seat up front for me somewhere. No, 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 no. Joan, he it was Joan. Up late. He showed up late. I got in there and saved him a okay. seat. And he was a punk. Oh. And he went to the front. <laughs> Well, in the meantime, I had, I had texted Joan, and Joan said, oh, I'm going to save you a seat. 
And so she saved me a seat at not her table, but at another table. And there was an empty seat next to me. And I said, oh, she could sit there. So I asked somebody, oh, is this seat taken? And they were like, well, yeah, it's taken. And then of course, Etsy Hinton sat in that seat, right? <laughs> so uh -huh. I'm sitting right next to her. And then later on, she leaves to talk early to go stand in line. And then, mm -hmm. so I get up there. Now there's a big line. And hundreds, I'm not going to stand in that line, but I'm not going to like cut in with her either because that would be rude. Mm -hmm. But since we were kind of big stars that day, I was oh, like, yeah, we were like yeah. this is the time where we can use our pool. Uh -huh. So let's just walk to, let's do something. And then right then, the head, the oh. person who organized the talk just walked by and I said, hey, can we just go right up and talk to her right now? And she was like, yeah, let's go. And then so we walked up and I had my in line because I am, am friends with Jim Metzler who played Matt Dillon's brother in Tex. Oh, yeah. So, so I just went up to her and I said, because she's very fond of all the actors who have played in her movies. And I said, hey, I'm friends with Jim Metzler and he's always, you know, said great things about you and the time, da 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 da, da. And then very quickly, uh -huh. without her noticing, I just whipped out my camera. Let's do a he selfie for Jim. Click. He selfied with Essie Hinton. It was implicit. You do not take pictures with Essie Hinton. Those are the rules. And Those I are just, the rules set forth by the goddess, by the gods. And I just like click and then ran. And then, no. And then, so I, I said, and I'm like, by the but way, you're, the problem is how the handler gets so upset. I apologize profusely for him. <laughs> run back to the line they let me back in the party line with the educators i go up i meet her and, and you know greg's like you know off to the Never side apologize. and he's just snapping all the photos to the side because i'm sitting there talking to her i'm grateful for that and then he's like so did you tell her about your book and who you are and this and that and i was like dude i went totally blank it's like totally blank it's like i'm meeting this person who wrote this iconic book that changed my it was like all of a sudden i was 12 years old so anybody who tells you that when they don't meet that person and that they're and they go out there and they're all cool, like Neri tries to be, he was 12 too. He was 12. But she didn't have quite the aura for me as for you. So I was. Well, we have a teenage, we have a teenage, what, 10 year age gap. So, you yeah. know, I'm, I think that's, you know, you're in the, you're in the latter years of your life. So. Exactly. <laughs> Well, actually, I have a question that ties in perfectly with that. I got a nice little segue for that. Um, we're talking about the outsiders here and how, uh, you know, formative that was for so many of you. Um, and I guess what I'm sort of curious in, for both of you, Greg and, and E, because um, you're talking about this experience earlier in your life and how it sort of influenced your writing and stuff. Uh, is there an early experience that you guys have where you, like, first – recognize that language has the power that it has and how that ultimately maybe led you on your path towards becoming authors? Well, I think for me, it was more visual because I started as a visual artist, um, as a painter and uh, yeah, drawing all the time. And, you know, and then I kind of came to reading late because I was a visual person. And, um, you know, so I always say it's like the book that kind of turned me was The Phantom Tollbooth because mm. I had this idea about a book and it was kind of like, you know, I was really into books when it was all pictures 
and I loved illustration of picture books, but then, you know, as you get older, the pictures disappear and the text takes over and I just couldn't break through that wall. But the Phantom Toll Booth, you know, felt kind of dangerous. You know, it was funny. It was totally out there. You know, I didn't know that you could do stuff like that in a book. And so kind of like me being the rule breaker who doesn't like to do the thing the way things are for everybody else like seeing somebody do that in a book was like oh you can do that and get away with it um <laughs> kind of like informed a lot of things in me i think so that kind of it's kind of rebellious and it totally plays into it so it felt like that was written for me kind of thing um and just has this crazy imagination um, so it seemed to just break all the rules. And I think later on when I got into writing, I just think, you know, I, I talk to people all the time. They're like, they have these rules in their head, like, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. Or it can only be this many pages. You have to write in this font. And <laughs> I'm like, I want to break every single one of those rules, you know, so I'm not going to ever do anything that falls within a parameters of the way something should be. It's right. just however it is, it comes out. That's the way it comes out. You know, it's, I think a lot of that harkens back to that, you know, early experience with that book. Like, you could do anything. Like, it's, the only rule is it has to work, right? It works, sure. so who cares? <laughs> well, I want to say something about that because Greg prides himself on being a rule breaker. And he is. And I think that's a great thing. I think teachers, if they hear that, get really frightened. Because they think when a, a creative comes into the building that we're saying don't teach grammar, don't teach sentence diagramming. Like these are things I still love to do as a recreation. But the thing is, is it, you know, when, when especially, I mean, I, I can't, I think Greg and I both are on the same page about this. He'll definitely correct me if we're not. Yeah. But the thing is, is that, you know, what the thing I tell the kids in, in I, and I really believe this as a writer is you have to learn all of the rules. You have to learn them like the baseline, but then you have, but then the, the thing is you learn them so you can break them. You have to be informed, knowledge is power. And that comes to, into your craft, whether you're coming at it from the point of view of, you know, like Greg coming from filmmaking, you know, I've always been a writer in one way or another. I was a playwright, I was a poet, and then I was a filmmaker. But, but, the, but then transitioning to writing books, like I said, it was completely accidental. And, the, and to find, you know, you talked about in your question, like, how did you, you know, the idea of when did you know that words had power? The thing is, it's interesting is, as I don't know of a time when I didn't, and part of it is in my upbringing, um, I didn't have a lot of access to a lot of literature, but I read Cummings, E.E. E. Cummings, when I was like in sixth grade. And I read it because I found it in a high school, like in the back of like, a, it was like very seedy. It was like I'd gone into the back room of something and I found it stuck somewhere that, that you know, and, you know, it had like those like yellow pages on the, the crisp, you know, they were like those, they had that smell. And when I saw how Cummings, you know, used the page like a canvas, and I thought, wow, you can do that? And it's poetry. And people say, well, that's not fiction. But he's telling a story in poetry. And, and I thought, wow, what if you could do that with fiction? You know, what if you can do that, it's, you know, whether it's with verse? And I like what Greg says when he says, you know, well, you know, when someone says, well, those aren't the rules. You can't do it that way. My question, though, as follows is, why not? I mean, when you look at Monster by Walter D. Myers, look what he's done. And someone should have told him he can't do that. Yeah, anything, you know, but he can. 
anything that you love, whether it's a book or a movie or something, is something that totally broke the rules. And that's the reason is it? it's so deeply ingrained in you is because it pushed the envelope past the, the things that you see every day. Exactly. And it, it just reaches a place that these other pieces can't. And, but going back to the word, I think of myself more as a storyteller than a writer. And so mm-hmm. to me, it's not that the word is all powerful, it's the story is all powerful. Right. And however you tell that, whether it's in a book or a movie or a painting, you know, that's the thing, the story, or you're telling right. it, you know, it's all right. the story. And so you can reach anybody with a great story, I think, you know, so I float around different mediums. And so book is just another way to tell a story. And within that, you know, a novel, graphic novel, short story, poetry, it doesn't right. matter so much. Um, it's just, it's still telling a story. Thanks for listening to the ICTE podcast. The podcast is written, produced, and hosted by me, Austin Hall. Music for this episode by Steve Combs from the Free Music Archive. Please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. You can now listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and many other podcast streaming platforms. We'd also love for you to rate and review the ICTE podcast. That will allow others to discover us. Thank you to Jen Paulson, G. Neri, and E.E. Charlton Trujillo for their contributions to the episode. For more information about G. Neri, visit his website, www.gregneri.com. That's www.gregneri.com. There you'll be able to find all sorts of information about his work, including his latest, a graphic biography titled Grand Theft Horse. Here's a blurb for the book from his website. Gail Ruffu was a rookie trainer known for her unconventional methods and ability to handle dangerous horses. When she became part owner of an untamed thoroughbred named Urgent Envoy, everything changed. After Urgent Envoy showed real promise, her co-owners forced Gail to speed up training and race him too early, causing the horse to develop a hairline fracture. Refusing to drug the horse to keep it running, Gail lost Urgent Envoy to her co-owners, who pushed the horse even harder. One more race would kill him. When nobody heeded her warnings, Gail had to act. So, on Christmas Eve, she rescued her own horse. A modern-day outlaw, Gail evaded private investigators and refused to give the horse up. Blacklisted by the racing world, she learned the law at night to take on a powerful L.A. attorney determined to crush her in court. As she stood up for the humane treatment of racehorses, she also faced down the system that caused their demise. In this gorgeous graphic biography, G. Neri, author of the acclaimed Yummy and True and Nell, retells the life of his cousin Gail, a pioneer who challenged the horse racing world for the sake of one extraordinary horse. With illustrations by brilliant newcomer Corbin Wilkin, it is a must-read for horse lovers everywhere. Some other G. Neri nuggets that you need to be aware of. Uh, He's currently working on two Antarctic comic projects, one about Antarctic dinosaurs and the other a comic travelogue. Uh, The sequel to his book Ghetto Cowboy and a companion graphic novel to Yummy about the south side of Chicago today are also in the works. And Ghetto Cowboy the movie is also set to shoot this summer, the summer of 2019. Now for more information about E.E. Charlton Trujillo, visit her website, www.bigdreamswrite.com. Again, that's www.bigdreamswrite.com.
B-I-G-D-R-E-A-M-S-W-R-I-T-E.com. There, you'll be able to find all sorts of information about her work, including her upcoming sequel to Fat Angie, titled Fat Angie Rebel Girl Revolution. Here's the blurb for the book from her site. Sophomore year has just begun, and Angie is miserable. Her girlfriend, KC, has moved away. Her good friend, Jake, is keeping his distance, and the resident bully has ramped up an increasingly vicious and targeted campaign to humiliate her. An over-the-top statue dedication planned for her sister, who died in Iraq, is almost too much to bear. And it doesn't help that her mother has placed a symbolic empty urn on their mantle. At the ceremony, a soldier hands Angie a final letter from her sister, including a list of places she wanted the two of them to visit when she got home from the war. With her mother threatening to send Angie to a treatment center, and the situation at school becoming violent, Angie enlists the help of her estranged childhood friend, Jamboree. Along with a few other outsiders, they pack into an RV and head across the state on the road trip Angie's sister did not live to take. It might be just what Angie needs to find a way to let her sister go and find herself in the process. In addition to Fat Angie Rebel Girl Revolution, which drops March 5th and can be pre-ordered at IndieBound, Amazon, and wherever books are sold, E's documentary, At Risk Summer, is now on sale with an educational guide. You can purchase the film at http colon slash slash vimeo dot com slash on demand slash at risk summer. We're just getting started with G&E. Be sure to catch the rest of our conversation with part two of this episode, including just what it is about Gianeri's work that makes his friend and co-author E say this about him. He just, it's interesting if you look at, at the breadth of his work and how much he's, he's grown as a storyteller and he commits to being a storyteller. He's not afraid to, to push in boundaries that um, other authors won't go. Thanks again, ICTE. Until next time, this has been Austin Hall for the ICTE podcast, the official podcast of the Iowa Council of Teachers of English.